A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. In 2001, uh, when I was a teacher out in Vancouver... I attended an end-of-year gala where the theme was Arabian Nights. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume and put makeup on. I shouldn't have done that. I should have known better, but I didn't. And I'm really sorry. So, Archie, my instinct uh, when this Trudeau brown face thing broke uh, this evening was to mock it. We had already produced today's episode of Shortcuts, and uh, we came back to the studio at night to uh, to update the show. And, you know, I, I was just like, I'm going to make fun of this whole thing. Because to me, like, Trudeau just looked so absurd, so silly, like such a lightweight. And racism isn't silly, but Trudeau just looked so silly. And and uh, to take this like super, super seriously was not my instinct. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> However, um, one one good thing I did is I, I ran it past you and, and the rest of the team, and and you you were like forthright in saying like, no, do, do not take that tack with this. You know my my kind of instinct when the story first broke, I took it almost in a, in a similar way. It looks so absurd, like this photo of of a man that we're used to kind of seeing in in you know standing next to heads of government and heads of state and conducting the very serious business of of running a country just in this absurd ridiculous looking outfit in this face paint so at first i was kind of i was following it on twitter the contrast between how seriously i took him prior to this was not why i found this so silly fair it's enough. like am i supposed to act surprised by this like, yeah, yeah like am i supposed to act like i thought that he was somehow above something like this like this is exactly what i would expect from the guy so like now i'm supposed to be, oh my i'm scandalized i'm shocked 
Um, anyhow, not only did you did you I think I think wisely advise me not to go that way, but you got into an Uber and you came here to the studio to, to help us actually address this in a different way. Thank you. God bless you. What is your response to what you saw tonight? So, like I said, initially it was just kind of like, oh, this is – I was thinking like a, almost like a political journalist, right? Oh, what does this mean for the campaign? This is good. This is really going to tank the liberals' chances or maybe it won't. Uh, you know, how are the opposition leaders going to react? Um, and, and then I watched Jagmeet Singh's uh, speech. And again, I'm not usually one to, to compliment politicians – but it really hit me hard. Uh, he he makes this kind of direct to to the camera appeal, not really addressing the prime minister, not talking about uh, uh, the political consequences or 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 even the election or any of that, but talking to to essentially the you know non-white folks, especially young people in the country, and what this is actually going to mean for. For a lot of young people who might look up to Trudeau in a way that cynical journalists like us do not, and and how painful that would be. And for me, just watching that, it, it shifted the tone so much and so significantly. And seeing this image today, the kids that see this image, the people that see this image are going to think about all the times in their life that they were made fun of, that they were hurt, that they were hit, that they were insulted that they were made to feel less because of who they are. And I want to talk to those people right now. I want to talk to all the kids out there, all the folks that live this and now are growing up and are still feeling the pain of racism. I want you to know that you might feel like giving up on Canada. You might feel like giving up on yourselves. I want you to know that you have value, you have worth, and you are loved. And I don't want you to give up on Canada, and please don't give up on yourselves. There's so many people in this country that believe in taking care of one another. I know it's hard to believe right now, but there are. And together, we are going to come together and take care of one another. So seeing this image is going to be hard for a lot of people. It's going to bring up a lot of pain. It's going to bring up a lot of hurt. Please reach out to your loved ones. Please reach out to people who are suffering in silence right now. Please let them know that they are loved and they are celebrated for who they are. To put in a little bit of context, you know, I grew up around Vancouver, as I'm uh, apt to mention in, uh, in, in many a podcast. And uh, uh, at the time that, that uh, Justin Trudeau was a teacher at West Point Gray putting on this, this kind of racist pantomime, I was like a young brown kid who had a turban and faced pretty consistent bullying, a lot of, of, you know, feelings of exclusion, of marginalization. And like, you know, it, it really did take me back to, to all of that. And like, it can't be emphasized enough. This guy was a fucking teacher at the time. Yeah. He was a teacher. This is not, you know, I know there's there's photos of him as a teenager that we'll, we'll get to in a minute. This is when he's in a position of authority. And I was just thinking, like, at that time when I was feeling pretty shitty about myself because of the way that I looked and, you know, because of of, of the way that I, I dressed uh, in, the, you know, the religious symbols that, that I had, um, what that would have, how devastated I would have been if, if a teacher of mine 
had done that or if I'd seen that. It was not only was he a teacher, they printed it in the yearbook. Yeah. Right? And he was Pierre Trudeau's fucking son. Even before he was prime minister or anything else, it was like prince of the nation. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And and that just, I don't know, it just kind of broke my heart and then made me just very, very fucking angry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let, let me go in on one, one more little rant on that. So, again, he was a teacher wearing this this racist uh, brown face, if you want to call it that, um, and, and you know, a, a kind of mocking, like, turban in the style of, of Aladdin. Also, not a very good Aladdin costume, let's just say. Like, that's not what Aladdin looks like. Come on. Um, I don't know. But what even does Aladdin look like? Today, right. this, this is a prime minister who is refusing to have the federal government step in and do anything about a very racist law in which actual people who wear turbans, have hijabs, wear kippahs, wear religious symbols are going to be excluded from their jobs. Yeah. A, a law that's yeah. literally against the Charter of Rights to the point where they had to use the notwithstanding clause. And because he's pandering for votes, just, and, and just like all the other federal leaders, I will add, but, you know, he's the one in charge right now. And he is refusing to do anything for those kinds of teachers. So putting those two facts in contrast is is it, it just makes it even worse. As does the fact that he's sort of this avowed ally and anti-racist character uh, in, in his presentation. You would hope that a young person would look up to the prime minister of Canada, you know, and, and look, if, if when you I was are, young, I was yeah. obsessed with politics to the point where I looked up to Jean Chrétien. Right? Like, you have to be. And I really... cannot relate at all. <laughs> yeah. but I'm sure there are children like that out there. Yeah, and, and then to know, like, not only did he mock people like like you when he was young, but now he's not going to do anything uh, to stop, like, just the most overt gross racism in Quebec. Can we talk about how this is playing out in the media as we do here for a minute? Uh, yes. One more personal rant before sure. we get to that. So, for folks who don't know, the school that he was teaching at is West Point Gray. It's probably the fanciest, maybe second fanciest kind of day school in Vancouver. And... I went to one of these schools in high school for my last three years. It was a boarding school on Vancouver Island full of the richest rich kids who ever did rich. And I was the kind of scholarship bursary kid there. Yeah. But also I was one of four brown kids of any kind at that school out of, you know, 450, I think. And again, like, and this is in high school now, right? Not even, you know, you can't blame it on young kids. And there was just like the mocking, the racism, the isolation was intense. And I think, you know, what's what was interesting about the story to me was that there appeared to be some kind of omerta around this uh, yearbook and people who are associated with West Point Gray. Seems like a lot of people knew about it, and yet they weren't willing to, like, say anything or except for this one person who did take it to the media eventually. But... You know, when the Time Magazine story appeared to to indicate that, like, oh, yeah, everyone knew. They knew that this could be politically damaging, but they're looking out for their own. And, like, uh, again, that pisses me off, too. Well, that does bring us to the to yeah. the media angle of this because, like, Time Magazine broke this? Like, really? So you have to imagine the conservatives have done, spared no expense in their oppo research. 
it's not rocket science to go through somebody. Where were they when? When did they work where? Is there a yearbook associate? Like the yearbook is the first thing that you start looking through when you're doing oppo work. And then the media is supposed to vet the candidates. This is the second federal election. We didn't catch this the first time around. We didn't catch it the second time around. Maybe we would have, but we'll never know because Time Magazine is the magazine that broke this. What what do you make of that? It's surprising because not only has he been, this is his second election as leader, before this, there was the liberal leadership race. Before that, even when he became uh, the MP for Papineau, he was you know one of those high-profile candidates to run. Everyone was kind of uh, obsessed with him. I don't get it. And like, not only that, he is a world-famous figure, right? He is probably the single most famous Canadian politician ever whose name is not Rob Ford. Yeah. <laughs> so you think, you know, even in the States or something, like, I don't know, you have people all over the world kind of interested well, in this person. And, and the States stuff. ultimately did. I mean, some, somebody brought we, it to them, but like... Uh, and it was somebody who was associated with West Point Grey, with this yeah. school that brought it to them. So I did, still did, think we don't know yeah. exactly how this story played out. I mean, that's out. maybe so a question a for caught. Canada Land to find, like, to talk, try to talk to this guy and, and find out, did you, did, you, did you try to take this to any Canadian media? Now, I'm noticing... On Twitter, a, a couple of things. First of sure. all, when I asked the question, how did the Canadian media miss this? Uh, you know, every kind of conservative rando is saying, like, because they're paid off Justin journalists, what do you think? And I'm like, no way. Like, I don't care how Not much. In a million years. I don't care how much your personal politics sway towards the Liberal Party or if you feel like you've got something to gain from the media bailout. You are not going to sit on a story like this. If you have that photo, if you have this story, you're not going to bury it because you love Justin. And and that was my original position. And then, if, I don't know, maybe I'm too easily influenced. A bunch of people on Twitter were saying, I've seen that brown face photo of Justin dressed up as Aladdin before. And when they said that, I thought to myself, I could swear I've seen that too. And I don't know if that's just like how impressionable I am or if like I started to think like, did I see that in those kind of like weird photo montages that people like circulate when they're like trying to discredit Trudeau and because of who it was coming from, kind of like, you know, the Ezra event rebel army, I immediately disqualified the pictures as as like, I don't what am, what am I looking at? Is that doctored? Is that him? I don't know what the hell that is. I don't believe that any newsroom would have this photograph and consciously bury it and not use it. Right. I guess I find it plausible that this was somehow around and and no one was able to, like what am i looking at exactly like like this this is a hot potato i don't know what do you think uh, we don't have the information I mean, that that's the thing i mean your memory is very fungible we should say so like what's it, it, harder to believe is it harder to believe that a newsroom had this and sat on it, which is very hard to no, believe. No, but that, it's also really hard to believe that nobody ever saw this before until right now. But like I said, the Time Magazine report indicated that a lot of people did know about it, a lot of people had seen it, and there were people associated with this school. You know, if you were a student at the time or like a, a teacher and you had this yearbook, you know, especially when Justin Trudeau goes on to be prime minister, of course you're going to be showing folks that. I, I would imagine, you know, just people in your own like oh, circle. Yeah. Right. But maybe you're like maybe there was some Laurentian consensus, like let's just keep this to ourselves. I like I don't know. I, I, I wanna know what the what what is the story with this yearbook? I mean, I don't know. I think it's a while ago. Maybe there's only a few of them in circulation. <laughs> then there's this other yearbook photo that uh as we sit here just broke, you know, I think less than an hour ago. That also has me raising questions. So there's this other picture, you know, Trudeau acknowledged in that scrum, and it seems like everybody kind of knew, 
is this the first time this has ever happened? Is there any other thing you want to own up to? And he immediately goes, when I was in high school, I, I, I sang Deo with makeup on. We know what he means by makeup on. He, he, he did blackface is what he's saying there. And then the photo ostensibly of that gets posted by Robert Fife of the Globe and Mail. And, and I think like 12 minutes later, uh, Evan Solomon of CTV claiming an exclusive and saying that he actually has sources verifying that this is that Deo performance. It's hard to tell from that photograph if he's in blackface or not exactly, but I guess it's easy for him to deny it. He admitted he, it, though, so we know. Well, he admitted that he, it would be very easy for him to say, like, yes, I did that, but this is not a photo of that. This is something different. When he was asked directly whether or not there were only these two instances of him doing that, he skirted the question. So there may be more. Maybe this is different. Maybe not. We'll probably have a little bit better clarity on that. I, I do think that yeah. we should... You know, on on this issue, we've kind of skirted about why this is so terrible. I think we're making the assumption that people should people are all on the same page. But especially, you know, this uh, a photo engaging in a performance like that, pretending to be Harry Belafonte. And I'm sure he had some weird put on accent like that goes on. That draws from the the deepest worst histories of minstrelsy in North America, right? Like yeah, that is, but countdown really very very dark, very yeah, racist. It's it, it's it's very bad. But let's let's also like countdown towards somebody brings up the oh it's different in Quebec part, right? Like like and he's from Quebec and they and they they've been doing blackface since like a year ago. You know, doesn't make it right. Uh, no, uh, no. Uh, but these things are on cultural timelines and have different contexts. And, and the year at which that became completely verboten everywhere else is not the same year that that became culturally. I mean, I, I'm look, look, b- believe, not making excuses. I, what I want to know is why I brought up the second photograph mm-hmm. is and I'm not suggesting one way or the other. Both both of the things I'm about to say are equally plausible. Either in the wake of the brownface revelation, both the CTV newsroom and the Globe and Mail newsroom received that photograph and then we're in a mad scramble as to who was going to publish it first, which is p- possible. I think that's plausible. Or they were sitting on it. I... In the same way that the Globe and Mail had been sitting on their big Doug Ford investigation and then once Gawker went forward with the crack tape and then the star followed, then the Globe was like, well, what are we going to do? Like, cat's out of the bag. Let's publish what we've got. Uh, we're talking like right after this has happened, so I'm going to follow up with look, questions. Look, but... I mean, in those cases, right, the Rob Ford stuff gets Rob Ford stuff, and the Doug Ford was he a dealer story that the Globe published that you're referencing. Um, you know, I think those situations are a bit more complicated because they involve serious investigative journalism that takes a long time, and you there's a difference between sitting on something, quote unquote, and like working the story, and then when someone else publishes, you're forced to like, okay, we gotta go with what we Canada have. has a bad a bad history of uh using journalistic rigor as an excuse to sit I, on hot stories. I, I do agree, but the distinction I'm trying to make is between that and something like the existence of a photo in blackface. I find it hard to believe that Canadian newsrooms wouldn't report on that because the very photo, the existence of the photo is news unto itself. And when you have it, then you can, that's all you you kind of need. There's there's no more work to do. I'm not saying that that's not, maybe that is what happened. But when I saw those, the second photo start to circulate, what I imagined was, okay, the conservative war room had this. They're planning to release it at a very damaging point. Yep. This is the single most damaging time imaginable, right? It furthers the, the narrative. So they gave it to multiple reporters, you know, including Evan Solomon and Bob Fife. 
I think that this is an early moment for this story, and and we got to know everything about this. We got to know everything about this. I mean, and and it, it, it's not a trivial thing. It's not a silly thing. I think that so much about Canada is revealed in this story. The brand. Let's talk about that. Like, what do you what do you think is revealed about Canada in this? I think that part of it is what you pointed out initially is the the chumminess with which information can kind of be like we make excuses, we hold on to things like how this did not get out earlier in the states. Uh, every like any hint of anything like this would be weaponized very quickly. So there, 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 the circle of people who knew about this is not insignificant. There's not there aren't four people who had these materials or knowledge of them. Mm-hmm. You know, so the process by which that was kept under wraps, I think, is a revealing one about Canada. I think that you know one person was commenting immediately this was like front page news new york times all over the world the guardian and people were like wow i didn't know this was going to make international news i was not surprised no, no, because he not. live by the brand die by the brand yeah. i think that the flip side of the trudeau brand is is in many ways revealing of like the the lie of of our of of his allyship we should also point it's, out this this photo was allegedly i think this yearbook is from maybe a year before uh, Trudeau's alleged to have groped a woman, a reporter at a at a festival. You know, yeah. it's clear that this man, when he was in his his late twenties, early thirties, which is you know my age, right? You're, I'm an adult. He was an adult. He was responsible for his actions, but he was acting completely contrary to the ways that a human being should act, especially somebody who's. You know, he was acting contrary to being a good person, it seems, in a lot of ways. And yet he goes on. But he's he's a a lightweight. He's not a deep dude. I'm not saying he's a deep dude or not. What I'm saying is that for a lot of people, those kinds of transgressions would destroy you. Right. Like or you're not going to be able to move up in a it'd be hard to move up in a career or or a lot of, you know, uh, certainly not in politics, but because he comes from this special elite class, because he is the son of Pierre Trudeau, because he gave a nice eulogy at his dad's funeral, he is immediately kind of given, not not only is he assumed to be like some kind of secular saint, but he goes up and up and up, and now he's the leader yes. of the country. You ask me what this reveals about Canada, I'll, I'll say... Forget about makeup he put on his face. This guy has cultural appropriation tattooed on his arm, yeah. and we all overlooked it. We all kind of like the Haida, we're referring to the Haida tattoos. Yeah, that Justin Trudeau has. his yeah. his story of how he became a political contender involves him beating up a tough indigenous guy, right? We all like. I think that what this reveals about Canada is like the thinness of his brand as a progressive uh, and how little that's based on and how in policy, how little he delivered on that promise and everything that we bought into and the world's media bought into, you know, the chickens come home to roost. It's, 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 if that's how you build it, then if if it's all, if selfies build it up, then a brown face photograph takes it down and, and, and and sort of the, the, the frivolousness of Canadian public life. So, and a lot of people are thinking, for all the fact that this has to do with, you know, progressive politics and dreaded identity politics are being taken so seriously in this. Well, what a shabby reality for Canadians and for racialized Canadians, because the outcome of this could very well be that we have a conservative government as a result of all this. So, I, you know, I mean, like, isn't that an ironic twist that, like, if you give a shit about these issues, you're 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 paid back with a government that is, you know, arguably even less interested. And and that's what what we're going to be hearing over the next few days from all of Shamrock Twitter 
is just, well, Andrew Scheer is worse. Oh, the conservatives are worse. But you know what? We have to take Trudeau seriously. We have to actually engage in some of these awful things that he has done and not just kind of play politics off of, of, of you know, this kind of comparison politics of, of the lesser of two evils. Um, it... it it becomes just so demoralizing when when we end up doing that kind of thing. Ugh, I, don't I don't know. know. You know I'm what? just fucking breaking. Like, it's, it's so frustrating. Arshi, we recorded a perfectly interesting <laughs> episode of Shortcuts with Paul Wells that is all about how little there was to talk about in this election. <laughs> and uh, we're going to play that full episode out because uh, just a few short hours ago, that was the state of the game. And a lot of the things we discussed are still in play. And let's let's hear the rest of that right now. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Last seen moderating a debate on a spaceship, it's McLean, senior writer and political editor, the man who puts the moderate in moderator. I have run out of jokes involving the word moderate. <laughs> Paul Wells. How are you? I'm doing okay, Paul. Uh, how are you doing? You uh, you resting up? Uh, yeah, I, I have my typical post-stressful event, massive cold, so I'm I'm wallowing in self-pity at home. Oh. But uh, apart from that, doing fine. It's nice of the human body to keep that at bay until you, you can allow it through the gates. Exactly. On today's show, Paul, Trudeau bought me fries. One reporter's true life story. Also, Faith Goldie, Ezra Levant, and Maxime Bernier. We have found the three worst people in the country, and this week's news cycle has been all about them. Dear God, why? Good to have you back. Thanks. This week's episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Jenna Becker, Luke Cousson, Leslie Garrett, Michael Richardson, Jason Dumali, Julie Eplet, Glenn Gatin, and Javed Nassar. Hi, my name is Javed Nassar. I'm a student at the University of Toronto, and I support Canland because I enjoyed the perspective that it offers me, especially through the rigorous debate on opera and the wonderful investigative reporting of comments. I truly think it adds a unique voice to the Canadian media landscape. Trudeau, uh, David Cochran with CBC News. The first question today is going to be about questions. You praise yourself as a champion of transparency, but in the first five days of this campaign, you didn't take any questions from the media on two of those days, despite asking Canadians to make an important choice in October. You've also contrasted yourself to Stephen Harper, who took questions every day of the last election campaign. So why have you not been as accessible as Mr. Harper was last time? And will you commit to a daily question and answer session for the duration of this campaign? I'm happy to be taking questions today. I'm happy to be getting out across the country to talk with Canadians about uh, the very important choice, as you've highlighted, uh, that we need to make as a country. Do we continue to move forward uh, or do we go back to the Harper years? I'm for moving forward, and that's why I'm so glad to be taking questions today, uh, and we'll be continuing to take questions from media, who I respect deeply throughout this campaign. So moving forward, will we do this daily? I'm looking forward to taking questions from you on a regular basis. We don't want to move back to the Harper years, uh, when you know Harper had a reputation that the Trudeau does not have for being inaccessible to the press, not taking questions, putting out his own propaganda as opposed to showing press accountability. We don't want to move back to that. It seems like we're not only back to that, it's actually much worse. Of course, Trudeau was not even there for the debate that you moderated, Paul. Yeah. And then and then he's on the campaign trail not even taking questions until until reporters made a stink about it, and, and then he, he did take some questions. 
Why do you think he's getting like is he, he's getting away with it? Can we can we start there that that uh, he somehow has avoided that reputation that Harper had? I think so. To some extent, there, there's the facts of what you do, and then there's the affect of how you act, right? And it was clear that Stephen Harper didn't like reporters, and uh, and, and and so I think he was he was scored especially harshly on his uh, response to the media environment. Almost everything he did, there were antecedents going way before he became prime minister. Uh, and there have been echoes of it since he stopped being prime minister. As for Trudeau, well, whether he's getting away with it, I'll tell you on October 22nd. <laughs> and then that reporter <laughs> who, who questioned him about his inaccessibility, David Cochran of the CBC, uh, Trudeau goes and buys a Putin and hands it to that reporter and says, we've always supported the CBC. I don't know if I'm making too much out of this. I mean, you know as well as I do, reporters pride themselves on, like, I don't even let them buy me a coffee. I don't let the slightest appearance of bias pollute my journalism. And now here he is with cameras on, turning the camera onto this journalist and handing him a Putin and putting him in this terrible position, which I don't know if it's just like this charm offensive where he's just completely, you know, he says, I respect reporters. That shows either an incredible ignorance to this this issue that matters quite a bit to reporters uh, or, or a profound disrespect towards that, that principle. Yeah, or, or, or it was a joke. Can it be both? Can, why, why, why do I have to be the guy who can't take a joke? I mean, it, I mean, it was obviously intended as a joke, but it was a shitty joke. It was a joke I, I kind of put him in an impossible spot. Am, am I overreacting? You tell me. Uh, yeah, but um, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a good week for that because everyone's overreacting. Yes. Uh, some anonymous conservative... Uh, silly person animated an entire short video about how this proved that David Cochran, as with the rest of the CBC, is deeply in the tank for the Liberals. Um, you, you need to know a little bit about David Cochran. I, to hear him talk, it's pretty obvious. He's a Newfoundlander. He was the absolute uh, unchallenged, most feared reporter, all classes in Newfoundland for uh, a lot longer than a decade at the legislature in St. John's. And he he cheerfully did not care what the partisan affiliation of the successive premiers was, he would reach down their throat and pluck out their hearts one by one by one. And I've wanted him to work outside of Newfoundland for more than a decade. He's here. And uh, as as you heard in the, 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 the clip that you used, he's perfectly able to put a hard question to Justin Trudeau. And uh, I, I suspect that's why he's, he's the guy who hove into Trudeau's field of view when Trudeau was looking around for some way to get rid of a poutine. There is no cozy relationship between David Cochran and Justin Trudeau. And I suspect that Cochran will have more than one occasion to demonstrate that as this as, as this campaign continues. Well, don't talk to me like I'm the guy who made that YouTube conspiracy video. No, I'm, no, no, I'm not I'm, saying I'm, that I'm Putin bought his affiliation. I'm talking through you to the cretins who uh, <laughs> who think they're they're advancing democracy by making up stupid videos about David Cochran. You know what? Today's episode is going to be about about. Uh, about cretins <laughs> about overreacting about because you have to talk about something and this election is about nothing like the the the, the poly yeah. i mean you did a good job i i thought your questions were really pointed and, and and actually found a lot of space between the positions as you pointed out at the end of the debate uh but it really is hard to fill this news cycle and and there's kind of this this inverse thing where out of lack of stuff to talk about we're we're kind of uh, all these theatrics are are, are rising up which arguably do reveal something. I mean, I, I, I think that the, 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 the question of Trudeau's true accessibility, like beyond his stated respect for reporters, uh, 
is a valid topic of some exploration. I, I think it's valid to criticize him for that, not just during this campaign. I think that he's done an incredibly good job of keeping the optics of accessibility while in practice uh, he's not somebody who, who journalists have had uh, much more access to than they did to Harper, if that much. His answer to Cochrane was a work of art. He nowhere addressed the premise of Cochrane's question. He yeah. uh, offered no useful information about his comportment going forward. This is why Trudeau is willing to face reporters very often, because if he doesn't want to tell you anything, he's not going to tell you anything. We noticed this probably only a few weeks after his government was elected in 2015. He had a news conference at the National Press Theatre, and it became obvious over the course of the thing that the point of it was so that he could say afterward that he had a news conference at the National Press Theatre and Harper didn't, because we got we got 10, 10 or 12 answers like the one he just gave Cochrane. Yeah. Incomprehensible, useless uh, almost self-satirizing, but at the end of it, he'd had the news conference, and so what was our complaint, you know? I mean, it just feels like accessibility to the press used to be the way in which you got a message out, and now it's just sort of like one ingredient in your recipe. It's a box to check to check off, to say, I, yeah, I did that, now let's get back to the things that actually carry. We're, we're on this show talking about the media and, and you know, optics of the, of the campaigns, but like, let's get really granular here with the story that was brought to my attention I don't know. If it is a story, you tell me. This is something that is, 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 I think, one of those things that journalists pay close attention to and the public would never otherwise know uh, if, if, if uh, there wasn't a show like this to, to make uh, something out of it. But I, I, I got a tip from somebody who said, Jesse, there's something really weird happening on the campaign trail, on both uh, the Trudeau, uh, the Liberal, and, and the Sheer press convoys where you know big news organizations pay quite a bit of money to put reporters into uh, circulation with these uh, with these campaigns, the Globe and Mail has two young women, one on each campaign. And mm-hmm. other reporters, colleagues of theirs at other news organizations noticed that when it was their turn to stand up and read a question, they were just like reading verbatim a pre-written question, which everybody kind of agreed had not been written by them. Good morning, Michelle Zilio with the Globe and Mail. Um, there's been discussion uh, across the world about some countries, including Germany, offering asylum to protesters in Hong Kong. Would your government offer asylum or permanent residence to Hong Kong protesters? Blackstone Group CEO Stephen Schwartzman says in his new book that he persuaded you to make concessions on the new NAFTA, including on dairy market access. Did you put your political survival ahead of Canadian interests in this trade deal? One of the things that uh, Canadians saw was uh, that we uh, had to stand up to the Americans in a strong and firm way to negotiate a good NAFTA uh, renegotiation for Canadians. So yes or no, do you agree with Mr. Schwartzman's claims that you that you made you know concessions on NAFTA? And and these two reporters, uh, Janice Dixon and Michelle Zilio, are respected, intelligent, capable young women. It is not uncommon for a reporter to say, I'd like to ask you a question from a colleague of mine or, or, or to take a suggestion from an editor. But this, uh, in, in the feeling of the people who got in touch with me and, and I was able to verify this, it was widely felt that this went beyond that, that they were they were basically this weird situation where they've, they've just been there to read these pre-written questions that, you know, I guess come from Bob Fife at the Globe and Mail who runs that bureau. And one of the reporters who felt that this should be a Canada land thing said, you know, if it were me, I would feel disrespected. It's unfortunate that they have to deal with this. Both are excellent reporters who deserve respect. Paul, what do you think about this? It's interesting. I, I hate scrums and campaigns uh, almost without exception. It, it's not a lot better when, when the entire press pack gets together and decides because there's a, a limited number of questions that, that 
we're all going to decide as a group what the question is and what the angle is. A lot of people don't know that, that the reporters do that, that, you know, there's a reason why the same question doesn't get asked three different ways by three different reporters. They kind of yeah. have a have a conversation amongst themselves and often whoever has sort of got the biggest rep or there's all kinds of dynamics that play into that where they, they come to some sort of consensus as to who's going to ask what. Yeah, they, they game it out in various ways and for various reasons. Like it's not, it's not uh, badly meant. It's just uh, their conception of the way they have to do the job. One reason we do these McLean's debates every four years, which uh, have come under a lot of criticism for good reasons, is that it's at least the, the, the 90 minutes every four years when I can just ask politicians whatever I want. Um, uh, as for my colleagues from the Globe, I've worked for Bob Fife as a bureau chief. It, it, it is 90% a wonderful thing. Uh-huh. I got to say, he's one of the best bosses I ever had. He manages up. He represents the bureau to Toronto. He doesn't represent Toronto to the bureau. Uh, and there are various other good things, but I think he's Paul, got this is Canada land. I'm interested in that 10%, not the 90%. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, it's, you're not going to get me today, Jesse. Uh, he, uh, he does have a strong conception of what he thinks the, 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 the lead story is, is going to be. And I haven't asked him whether he's sending his reporters questions. He would not be the first bureau chief to do that. It has in the past been pretty much common practice for the Sun Papers to do that sort of thing, which leads to the obvious question. Do you want the Globe to, to, to mimic the manners of the Sun Papers? I'll leave, I'll leave the Globe to puzzle through that uh, question themselves. Yeah, fair enough. I, I did ask Bob Fife uh, about this, and I asked the two reporters in question. None of them got back to me in time for today's show. Look, uh, as much as we irritate journalists, uh, by we I mean I irritate journalists, I, I try to advocate what, when I can for people uh, in newsrooms, and I hope I'm not embarrassing the young reporters involved. Like, I kind of feel like if you're going to pay the money to put these reporters on a plane to go follow Trudeau and Sheer around the country as they campaign, let them fucking construct a, a question themselves. Let them use their news judgment and uh, let them do their jobs. Um, that, that's uh, what, what I'll put out there and uh, hope that that actually has a positive effect on things. Yeah, uh, I will say that young journalists who work in bureaus led by Bob Fife tend to go on to have uh, pretty good careers, right? So Laura Stone at The Globe, who's in Queen's Park for The Globe now, was the you know young Ottawa reporter following instructions from her bureau chief, tearing it up at Queen's Park and will continue to do so. Paul, anything you can say about your colleagues' experiences with regards to access to Trudeau? It's something that Martin Lukacs uh, touched on. He, he, wrote, he has a book about Trudeau out. Oh, I, incidentally, uh, people should read that book. It is... It's a hell of a book and a, and a good left critique of Justin Trudeau. Yeah. What, what is the consensus amongst, uh, you, you know, the McLean's crew and the rest of your colleagues about what this prime minister is like in terms of press accessibility compared to others? So I have interviewed Justin Trudeau more often while he's been prime minister than his three predecessors combined. Um, uh, he is he has been super accessible to me up until the calendar year 2019. And uh, maybe if he's reelected, I'll find out whether that's changed because I was critical of him over SNC-Lavalin. When I started during my, during my brief summer internship at the Toronto Star in 2016, I got an interview with Trudeau on the first day. He was then, and has been since then, not in the habit of making himself available for newspaper interviews to Canadian journalists very often. Mm -hmm. He does TV. He does high-visibility foreign organizations, uh, American magazines, uh, 
Netflix, podcasts, things like that. So he picks his shots. I mean, here's here's the platform. We will make government information more accessible. That hasn't happened. We will make it easier for Canadians to access their own personal information. We'll embrace open data. We will disclose parliamentary expenses and make parliament open by default. That's open data stuff. But I think that that transparency and accountability was certainly something he ran on. It is way easier to promise accessibility before you are a prime minister with secrets to hide or with contradictions that you'd rather not have to reconcile. Stephen Harper was... Uh, very easy to approach and very accessible and a funny guy in opposition. And then those reporters with whom he had that relationship, he just, he shut them down cold from one day to the next. Mm -hmm. Trudeau, like I say, I mean, I, I, I have no right to complain. I've interviewed him in every calendar year since 2012 yep. until 2019. And so uh, it goes. And, you and, and, you know, Andrew Scheer today drops the price of what it costs to tag along with his convoy. Uh, should he win? Don't expect the... <laughs> the, the any bargains yeah um paul martin had his uh, communications director keep a list of those journalists who would be uh allowed to put questions to him and the order in which they would put those questions during the 20, 2006 campaign three months later stephen harper was the prime minister doing similar things and reporters started complaining then mm -hmm. um so what do you what do you you know it's uh the world's full of fun contradictions this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. I got to do something with these spots, Paul. I, I hope you understand. That was uh, not painful at all. Paul Wells, it is a, a, a regular thing that we do here on, on Shortcuts to duly note that which must be duly noted. Do you have something for us today? Yeah. Aren't you glad that huge newsroom resources are being thrown out of fake news, hunt? Everyone's out, um, on the lookout for bot armies and troll campaigns. And, and 
it's turning out to be basically insignificant in the conduct of this campaign. This reminds me of something. In 2004, I think it was, every news organization seemingly spontaneously decided that they were not going to allow themselves to be led around by uh, leaders' tours. And instead, they were all going to rent buses and, and vans and segways and put their correspondence on these vehicles <laughs> and send them out into the real world of real concerns of real voters. My favorite moment in that campaign was Mark Kelly from the CBC lifting up the flap on a camper's tent in Newfoundland to ask them, you know, what were they really concerned about in this campaign? It turns out that campers in Newfoundland are really concerned with who this strange man is poking his head into the tent, and, and, and Mark didn't get a very, very gentle welcome. Newsroom managers are almost, are, are quite rarely very interested in politics. They live their they live their Toronto, Montreal lives. They send their kids to Toronto, Montreal schools. Uh, they um, they worry about shortages of lettuce. And uh, when a campaign comes up, they are often in kind of a foul mood. And so they look around for the fun new thing that uh, will um, be a great distraction from leaders giving speeches. Uh, in 2004, it was the notion that, uh, you know, for the price of a bus, you could find your own real Canada. And in 2019, it's the idea that um, my plucky uh, newsroom division is going to fight off the bar bot armies of St. Petersburg. And I think they're both, they both stem from an, a, a, a desire not to get closer to the heart of democracy, but to amuse yourself with something novel until the campaign stops. Well, Paul, you're not going to get any argument from me that the fake news witch hunt is, is, is ludicrous. Though, actually, you know, if the threat was that this campaign were going to be infected by foreign actors uh, polluting our democracy with fake news... You know, it hasn't happened, so maybe, maybe all these efforts are working. There, there's a CB, yeah, you know, mission accomplished. There, there's actually a CBC fake news chat bot for kids, uh, and I guess it's doing a hell of a job because I haven't seen one piece of fake news this election. I, I'm going to suggest, I, I don't disagree with you, Paul, that I, it's, it's a flavor of the month thing. It's a gimmicky thing. It's a way to tart up election coverage to avoid actually covering the election. Um, you know, CTV has a truth tracker. It, it's like this is everywhere now. But I would suggest to you, there are tons of efforts uh, underway, but I would suggest to you that it, it might actually be a little bit, there might be a bit more to it than simply the flavor of the month thing. The government has funded this. Uh, CSIS has warned that our democracy is under attack. You know, yes, we're following the American trend, but there was like proposals floated to newsrooms I'm aware of where it was suggested, what if government were to pay you to hire a misinformation reporter? I followed up on that. The newsrooms denied that they actually are getting government funding for this. But lo and behold, all these newsrooms suddenly have these misinformation reporters. And I think that like uh, without trying to, you know, weave a big web of conspiracy here, I think there's something more to it than just flavor of the month. I think that one benefit to, you know, traditional newsrooms of being on the fake news hunt is that it buttresses their position as real news. You know, if there's such a thing as fake news, then, then, then we're the real news. And that's a very attractive proposition for a lot of legacy players. Uh, am I supposed to say duly noted? No, I'll say it. Duly noted. <laughs> okay. I got one, Paul. I would like to duly note that Peter Mansbridge is performing a terrific public service. While a lesser man might say, you know what, Canada, I, I, I've had my time, I've had my run, I, I just retired, I'm going to enjoy my half million dollar annual lifetime CBC pension, I'm going to pass the torch to others, but Peter Mansbridge has selflessly said, no, no, I am not done making a contribution. Maybe this election is about me, 
and and therefore I am going to provide high level election coverage every night, mostly from my home on my own dime with the help of my son, Willie. I mean, I'm not going to go on the campaign trail or interview candidates or get deeply into policy. No, it'll just be me talking uh, for like 20 minutes every day. That's what this guy's doing for us every day. He has been doing that through his new podcast, a production of Man's Corp Media. I've mentioned it before. And uh, as everyone in this country, I think, knows, it's called The Bridge, The Bridge with Peter Mann's Bridge. So as we all know, Paul, The Bridge is your bridge to this federal election. But Shortcuts is your bridge to the bridge. And and uh, what I want to duly note today is that we have a new segment on Bridge to the Bridge. We bring you the best of the bridge. Uh, Tiffany, take it to the bridge. Well, hello there. I'm Peter Mansbridge, and this is The Bridge, my election 2019 podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Everyone is as ready as they'll ever be, so let's get it on. That's my phone. And the fact is, you know, I'm not going to answer that phone because it's Willie. It's my son. And the fact is, he's supposed to be here actually doing the controls here, but he's stuck at university. going to be in Lethbridge. Uh, I think it's after the election sometime in November. I've got a speech in Lethbridge. Looking forward to it. Love Lethbridge. Love that bridge, that trestle bridge in Lethbridge. Um, okay. There you have it, Paul, the uh, the best of the bridge so far. Duly noted. <laughs> Anything more to add to that, or are you going to... Uh... <laughs> uh, I owe Mansbridge a lot. Um, I noticed that uh, Bob Ray's got a podcast, uh, Kevin Newman, uh, uh, Elamine, and uh, Rosie. Uh, I believe I'm the only uh, self-important pundit in the country who does not have a podcast right now. Hey, you're, you're co-hosting this podcast, Paul. Come on. I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting right here. Well, that's right. Sorry. I, yes. Yes. I do not have a solo podcast uh, conceived as your only source for uh, election news. Uh, maybe podcasts are the trend of the 2019 campaign. <laughs> Let him have his podcast. What's wrong with me? Everybody can, that's the beauty of podcasting is I'm not the guy who gets to say who gets to have a podcast. Peter Mansbridge, enjoy your podcast. I'll be listening. I'll be sharing it with my listeners. That's all. Duly note myself. Duly noted. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I sent a letter to the commissioner before making it clear. I think it's wrong to give someone like Mr. Bernier, the platform to spread hateful and divisive messages. I think it's absolutely wrong. Okay, so that's Jagmeet Singh decrying the decision from the Federal Leaders Debates Commission to allow Maxime Bernier to participate. You know, remember all, all that time we were talking about whether or not, you know, Elizabeth May could participate in the debates. And Maxime Bernier has this kind of rinky-dink party he threw together. And all of a sudden he gets, he gets a, a podium there. And, uh, Paul, I really want to know what you think about this because the Debates Commission is this new thing set up. It's all liberal appointees. And the Globe and Mail has decried this as obviously a politicized body. I mean, you know, who does this benefit? It benefits Justin Trudeau to have Maxime Bernier there splitting the conservative vote, putting Sheer on the spot for not being adequately rabid and, uh, and you know, making Justin Trudeau look really good and virtuous by comparison. Like any number of Maxime Bernier tweets could be recited back to him and say, that's not how we do things here in Canada. 
and Trudeau will look great. So, like, is there any non-cynical way to read this? You may be asking the wrong guy <laughs> to look for a non-cynical way to, to interpret the Debates Commission, because I'm, I'm the anti-Debates Commission guy from way back. Um, uh, a couple things. Uh, this was predictable. Uh, I predicted it in testimony to the Procedure and House Affairs Committee in 2017 when I went as a former debate moderator to talk about the notion of a debates commission. I said, the pressure will be in the name of diversity to have a very large number of moderators addressing a very large number of party leaders. I don't think this thing is a liberal puppet operation. It was conceived by the liberals. The liberals are so in love with it that they kept their leader away from as many independent debate projects as, as they could. They're going to TVA because TVA's got a concentrated audience of swing voters. But it ends up helping this incumbent as it would help any incumbent. Justin Trudeau is going to be one of 10 people at the English language debate in a few weeks. Even accounting for longer debate, he will, he'll be responsible for speaking for fewer minutes at that debate than he would have been if he showed up at mine. He can hide at that debate. And so, of course, as an incumbent, he loves it. I mean, it just feels like our democracy is in such, like, just crappy shape where every effort is taken to kind of minimize the conversation, minimize uh, how many debates that he's, he's going to be uh, present at, arguing with his opponents, minimize his access to the press. And every time there's just some kind of sensational distraction or some horrible bigot, it, it, it seems to benefit. And, and uh, you know, I can't ignore that his ministers have been kind of like putting out these videos. I mean, we all knew that Shear had been against uh, gay marriage, but to see him say it in that clip, to dig up that old clip and actually, you know, that stupid analogy about the dog's tail, you know, that that's just going to, that's a good news cycle or two. Look, Shear's got a, he's got an answer for that. I don't think that that's an unfair thing to do. You know, but then you get into this thing like that, you know, they float this uh, video. Hi, my name's Faith Goldie. I'm here to help out my friend Justina McCaffrey because we want to put together the coolest, the hottest new show on TV called A Wedding Dress for Everyone but me, not me, her. See, Justina and myself, we go back a couple of years now. First time we met, we clicked. See, I believe in a little thing called the girl mafia. If you're hot, you're smart, you're pretty, you roll in the right crowds, I basically want to become your friend. Yeah, I'm not one of those jealous types. I believe strength in numbers. And the two of us really are the only numbers you need at any party. When it comes to this town, we're about as close as you get to being called a socialite. Anywhere you go, the IT event, you'll see Justina McCaffrey and Faith Goldie there. Yeah, okay. I, I, I'm happy to think poorly of anybody who hung out with Faith Goldie. The, the, the video in question about this... Uh pitching this reality show for everybody gets a wedding dress but me. I mean, it was most damning to McCaffrey as a conservative candidate just in how horrible a human being she and her buddy Faith looked, in, you know, talking about how they hang out with the hot girls and, uh, you know, this, you know, rather rather shabby personal goal to be the star of a, of a wedding dress uh, reality show, you know, trying to connect that with the person who's running for, 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 for office you know, it's it's just sort of like, what are we even talking about? What is going on in this in this this campaign? Yeah, parenthetically, Justina McCaffrey's an old friend of mine, and uh, I wish her the best. I had the same reaction that when she ran, that I had when my old friend Catherine McKenna ran four years ago. That I have periodically now that more and more of my friends are running for more and more parties, which is oh, please don't. It's a hard life they're choosing, and uh, I. Uh, I saw attacks like this coming a mile away, and, uh, you know, um, I, I will say it's a drag that we have to beg these leaders 
for a chance to eke out a simulacrum of a conversation with them. That David Cochran has to say, you know, Prime Minister, could you please every day uh, uh, pretend but brazenly refuse to answer a question just as you're about to pretend but brazenly refuse to answer this one? Um, uh, as recently as uh, 2015, Chatelaine, Sarah Bosveld at Chatelaine sat down with each of the leaders for a long interview and, and, and Chatelaine ran the, um, the, the, the transcript and, and, and you got real information about what these leaders were like. Mansbridge, you know, we make fun of Mansbridge, man, those, those sit-downs and, and, and individual town halls that Mansbridge used to run over the course of a campaign was a chance to see the whites of these leaders' eyes. And... Um, uh, it was a chance. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it was possible that that might have occurred at those very, very friendly meetings. You know, that was that was feasible, uh, potentially. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm actually pleased we haven't picked apart my debate in any kind of uh, forensic way. I thought it was a pretty... Well, not while you're here, Paul. I thought it was a pretty good debate and uh, uh, could have been better. And, and, the, and the, the whole circumstance was weird. But my God, at least you got to hear... Jagmeet Singh taking questions about foreign affairs. Andrew Shearer taking questions about indigenous affairs. And, uh, and if they were um, lousy answers, then you got to see that. And if they were impressive answers, then you got to be impressed. And, and I believe it's the right of every leader to take or leave an invitation like the one we sent out to the, to, to the leaders. And I am not particularly vexed that Justin Trudeau passed ours up. But should there be more projects like that? Should there be more attempts to have some kind of real exchange rather than shitty scrum after shitty scrum? Absolutely. Finally, Paul, this is uh, also speaks to the crappiness of our democracy and our uh, meaningless discourse uh, where we should be talking about more important things. But it's not something that I can blame anyone but the media itself for, specifically the Globe and Mail. And that, of course, is the like inexplicable decision to platform Ezra Levant and give him editorial space in the Globe and Mail. This is not something that I shrug off. You know, people are saying like, you know, why are you making such a big deal about this? You don't like to read opinions that you disagree with. Jesse, isn't there room in the debate for people you disagree with? And the truth is, I don't really care. Like, I I can read that, roll my eyes and move on. I can read the thing in the Vancouver Sun um, putting down immigrants, uh, calling them arrogant. And and it doesn't really affect me. You know, it's it's an expression of, I guess, limitations of my own empathy that the only way I can really connect with why this does matter is to remember that I'm the grandson of immigrants. And, you know, it's not that long ago when you could find stuff in the newspaper saying that this Jewish ghetto is filled with arrogant foreigners who, who you know, smell too garlicky and don't learn the language and, you know, uh, marry their cousins and, uh, you know, they got loyalties we can't trust, you know. And I know how that, what that said to to my grandparents and that generation who were not refugees, but, but might as well have been because they would have been killed if they hadn't come here. And I know what it means when, when the Globe and Mail gives Ezra Levant a space to be very respectable and mount what really read as a very reasonable argument. Why, why shouldn't I be allowed and my reporters be allowed to ask some questions? Uh, you might disagree with the questions. You might find them prickly, but that's what a free press is for. You know, leaving aside the fact that he has maligned an entire ethnic group, that he's been on like a crusade of, of anti-Muslim bigotry, that he's just lied and spun conspiracy theories trying to blame Muslims for the Quebec mosque shooting and other things. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. And it's frustrating to be doing the work of documenting his bigotry and, you know, like that he, some of which he's apologized for, being sued for, argued in court that he's not to be taken seriously. And then have the Globe and Mail uh, really like just legitimize him. I mean, that that is what happened is uh, I know what message I would take from that uh, if I was 
a Muslim or any of the people he's come after, which is that this is a newspaper that is that is going to launder my enemy, you know? It's going to launder somebody who hates me and, and wants me gone. I don't know why the Globe Mail needs to do that. I got to say, I think you feel more strongly. Have you had Ezra on, uh, uh, have you ever had Ezra on the show? Yeah, in the early days, he was still with Sun News TV. At that time, the worst thing he had done, I was aware of, was he had come after the Roma people and, you know, totally bigoted crusade against the Roma um, but he apologized for it, and it was before the rebel. And it's a bit different than giving him editorial space. You know, my first question to him was, are you really an asshole, or do you just play one on TV? So, you know, it was an accountability interview that uh, is still up on our website. I don't think I would I would have him on in any context today. But, yeah, there is a line, I, I guess, and I feel like he, he trampled past it a long time ago. So um, I am... Um... Not an admirer of Ezra Levant. Uh, um, we used to work at the National Post. Uh, we socialized a few times. Uh, and then, golly, you know, starting in about 2011, 2012, he began to amuse himself by lying about me every time he talked about me and whatever. And then, and other people have much stronger cases against Ezra than I will ever have based on some of his uh, loathsome peddling of loathsome attitudes. He, he's a vicious, bad actor. Yeah. You know, I mean, like what, what does it take to get kicked out of the, of the playground in, in Canadian discourse? Like, but the, I don't know what he could do at this point. The, but that's not enough. The Globes move versus your reaction and a lot of people's reaction Rather than say who's right, I, I, I kind of in the, I'm in the mood to analyze it as a clash between the essentially 1980s attitude of free speech, including the, the freedom to say awful things, versus the 2010s uh, attitude of let us all together uh, collectively curate an ideal expression of opinion and then deny all other expressions that diverge from that ideal, the sort of cancel culture and all that stuff. I am older. I uh, I come from the 80s, and I, while I think a, a, a lot of the younger, more woke critics of today, uh, who are uh, frequently critical of me, often have a point. Look, when Nora Laredo, in the middle of my debate, says on Twitter that I am the uh, pinnacle of white media, white male mediocrity, she might be surprised how, uh, in my depths, I think she's probably got a point. But I, I, I come from let everyone say what they got to say and then let people decide what they think of it. And uh, I think Ezra is a test of that as much as he is uh, somebody who should just be systematically shunned. I think that uh, pinnacle was a bit much. No, listen, Paul. <laughs> That's right. I'm not even. I'm not even very good at white meal med- mediocrity. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I actually I thought you were very good at that. As I said, I, I'm not. Uh, you know, not just because you're on the show. I, I thought you did a good job. But but like I, I think that you you've, you've kind of you've drawn a connection that I think a lot of people draw, and I think it's the wrong connection, which is because you have felt the sting of like it hurts one's feelings to be to be dragged on Twitter. It yeah. does. And, and you know, you think, wow, does this person just think because I'm a person on TV or on a podcast that, that like this doesn't hurt me? Because the fact that there's a bit of truth to it and it was so unflinching and how mean it came at me, it really hurts. And, and the culture is so mean right now. And then that kind of creates this weird pathway of empathy to somebody like Ezra Levant. And I just don't think those two points meet whatsoever. You talk about cancel culture. I hear about cancel culture. Who has been canceled? <laughs> Ezra Levant has the rebel. You don't deserve or have any like divine right column space in the Globe and Mail. There's a guy with soiled pants who yells racial slurs at people on Queen Street, he has not, to my knowledge, been given editorial space in the Globe and Mail 
and free expression in Canada has not suffered one bit for that omission. Look, I don't choose uh, what opinion pieces run on the McLean's website. If I heard that Ezra Levant was uh, angling for uh, a forum in McLean's, I would advocate that we not run his piece. You know, so. Um, but that is a choice that, that, that any news organization has. Yeah. Like it's like, well, what are we going to do? Freedom of speech. Got to publish Ezra. Yeah. Uh, you know, did I lose a lot of sleep that the Globe ran an op-ed from Ezra Levant? I I rarely remember any Globe op-ed while I'm reading it. So <laughs> <laughs> you're not you're not the person, nor am I, who it actually hurts. And and if we don't think that words actually can hurt people, then what the fuck are we doing with words? You know. That's fair to point that out. Yep. And that's the argument I would have made internally if we had had the if we had had that choice to make. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts for this week, everybody. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send in. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Paul Wells, you're not on Twitter. Where can people find you? Uh, McLean's.ca. Our website is canadalandshow.com. The new season of Commons just launched. Dynasties. We're looking at Canada's most powerful families, starting with Astronics. And Oppo, my God, Justin Ling is doing some some act of dark magic. He is putting out an incredibly funny and interesting podcast about this incredible slog of an election. Uh, how does he do it? I'm, I'm not joking. It's a really, really interesting podcast this week on Oppo. Check it out. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, if, if our podcasts are a part of your routine, a part of your life, if you get information from us, if our news stories tell you things you think you should know, all of that is is something that happens because we have this Patreon crowdfunding page at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Please go to that page and help us out. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.